All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is another episode of Off the Record Podcast where we are interviewing CEOs and VCs to help you make your business better, tactics, bootstrapping, raising money, all of this good stuff. And today I have an, I have an opportunity to chat with Steve, Stephen Hakami, the CEO of a company called Visa. W-I-Z-A, which is a bootstrap company which makes software that creates email lists from LinkedIn. Steven, great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. I'm going to start a little bit with, a, with your story without asking you how did you get started. Um, you dropped out of the university and then you, in a way, kind of created your own real MBA uh, when you were doing your, I believe, sales development role. Uh, was, mm-hmm. How did that happen? This whole um, this whole quite dramatic shift for you yeah so um i funny enough this all stems back from high school job i got at uh, a parking lot and uh, i started working there with a friend and the guy who owned the parking lot um you know one summer i was uh working before going into university and he mentioned uh hey maybe if you'd like like a you know two three week internship uh, you can help me out at the company that I work at, uh, and just, you know, some, some, some work experience in an actual office. Uh, I think I was like 16 at the time. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. So, um, went, did that and just did uh, data entry. So I was entering literally information from LinkedIn into Salesforce. So, uh, at 16, that's when I started, uh, standard. Kind of the LinkedIn, yeah, the LinkedIn Salesforce stuff. Um, and I spent some more time there and, and, uh, he ended up offering me, uh, a sales role position for the following summer. Um, so I, I took him up on his offer. Um, and I was probably 17 at this time, uh, took a, took a sales role, was totally scared on the phone. So I um, relied heavily on email and I was all about volume from the start. So um, I would try to find more leads than the rest of the sales team, get more emails out, more follow up out. And that was my way to kind of make up for my, you know, I was young. So it was tough to talk to like a CHRO on the phone. Um, So that's kind of how I made up for it. Um, So I was doing that for uh, a few years. Um, finished university while working there remotely uh, and eventually decided to uh, drop out uh, after about a year and a half at the University of Laurier, uh, which is a school in Canada. Um, So, yeah, dropped out. Why is that? Why is that? Is it because you are like, hey, I'm not really learning much, like I don't, I'm not gaining like practical experience or was there like something else? Yeah, I, I never uh, wanted to, to go in the first place. It was more something where it was like, okay, my parents would kill me if I wasn't going. Uh, and once I kind of had a steady income, uh, it was enough that I could kind of drop out without them killing me. Uh, I always, from a young age, wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, so that was always on my mind. And it was just a matter of when it was time that I could do that. Uh, funny story, actually, which now my parents know now, uh, I've only recently told them, I actually pretended to go to school for like a year afterwards, um, while I was working, actually, and, and uh, working on, on, on 
you know, uh, the company I started before Wizza. So, um, yeah, never, never liked school. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some people, you know, there's some people like that, like who are so into the whole entrepreneurship field that just school seems like such a really weird place. Like what, what, what are you doing there? Right? Yeah. It's just, it, to me, it lacked like practicality. I felt like I could learn so much quicker on YouTube and digging into topics that I'm interested in at that moment than what the curriculum dictates. Um, so I found that, uh, when you're interested in something genuinely, you learn it so, so much easier. So kind of went down my rabbit holes of interest, um, which were all kind of based around entrepreneurship and starting up a, a startup. And you didn't start Visa. You started Kindling. Is that right? Your first yeah, company. So, so the first company I started was called Torch. Uh, and that's when I left the conference company I was working for in sales. Um, what Torch did is it would scan a user's um, Gmail inbox and it would look for prospects that you didn't follow up with. So say you sent an email to a guy last week and you still haven't sent a follow-up, it would alert you of that. Uh, Gmail kind of has that functionality now, except it's not as holistic. It kind of just right. here and there picks one off. Uh, this was kind of like, hey, here's 200 of them that you need to, to follow up with for, for high volume sales reps. Um, so that ultimately you know, wasn't working out and I kind of had to pivot just to have some income because I had left the job. Uh, so I came up with the idea for Kindling, which was basically uh, just an agency. Uh, I knew cold outreach just from, from my job and you know, from trying to grow Torch with cold outreach. So um, I was like, okay, I'll do this for, for other startups. Uh, so that's where Kindling came from. Started doing that for a bit, uh, grew it a bit over time. And then uh, as we picked up clients, really the, the need for Wizza came, became more apparent. And uh, I finally got the chance to come up with the software again and get back in the game that I really like, which is software. And you talked about this really good point, uh, which is special, I think, when you're early and you're bootstrapping something where you said it's easy, it's better to have a solution where the customers are actually already researching the problem versus they're like, oh, it would be nice to. Yeah, I think that's that's the probably the biggest lesson from Torch was it was a, actually a great product. And when I talk about it now, I'm like, you know, still hurts me a little because I'm like sales reps should be using this. Um, but what it did was it pointed out a problem you didn't know you had kind of by definition, you know, if we're showing you a prospect, you didn't know they existed. So if you asked, you know, the average sales rep, Hey, are you missing follow up with any of your prospects? They'd say, no, I'm, you know, I'm following up with everyone. Um, but it would uncover prospects that they didn't realize. So it would take a pretty self-critical rep to be seeking out like, Hey, how do I find the prospects I forgot about? Or, you know, so, um, yeah, compare that to Wizza where it's people know they want to find more prospects. People know they want to prospect faster and more automated and they want to save time and they're searching for ways to do that. And it's much easier to get in front of those people that are, you know, already down that funnel of, of, of interest and, uh, get in front of them with a Google ad or a blog post or whatever it might be. So how does Wizza work? You have, um, 
you have something like Sales QL, which is basically a Google Chrome extension. What it does is you just go on Sales Navigator or just LinkedIn and it kind of like pulls all the emails and makes it into a list, which you can then export as a CSV file or Excel. My guess is you do a lot more than that or I do yeah. it in a different way. Yeah, so we, we've become really focused on our data quality and that's the biggest reason people come to us. So we allow you to export entire LinkedIn searches um, and save lead lists. Um, we take it a step further. We also verify every single email address that you, that you find with Wizza. So you get 99.5% deliverability from every email that, that we provide you. We also only charge for those valid emails. So we're not just simply guessing uh, an email format and providing it for you, uh, and then you find out if it's valid or not later. Um, that hurts your domain authority. Uh, it's not good to have that many bounces, and it's just you know kind of messes up your CRM. Uh, you're only getting valid emails with Wizza. We also do a lot more on the side of, um, like I said, data cleanup and data quality. So uh, we're cleaning up stuff like middle initial. Uh, if a prospect's LinkedIn profile, let's say instead of Stephen Hakami, it says Stephen H. We're taking steps on other uh, mediums to try and figure out actually what is his last name and then what is his email. Um, we're taking a number of steps to find emails where we now get you know, an average of over 80% valid uh, emails in the US. So um, yeah, it, it, it really is our data quality. Right. Um, and uh, on top of that, we now enrich that data. So uh, stuff like, you know, phone numbers, uh, personal email, uh, Facebook profile, uh, company headcount, headquarters, et cetera, et cetera, over 30 data points. Right. And is the intent, Steve, to basically put it in like something like sales loft or outreach and then go from there? Or, or it's like you could maneuver it in your app, uh, do it all in one place. Like, how do you envision that? Or how does it, from the workflow perspective, works right now? I know I'm probably asking too many in-depth details, but curious. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's some that that's some stuff that's that's on our roadmap to kind of continually extend the functionality. Um, but the way most of our users use it today is that they'll export the search and then they'll sync it over to, yeah, like an outreach type tool uh, and send it through there. It really depends on, on, mm. on the company. Right, right. Now, I know you are, um, like, how did you take, um, maybe just focus a little bit here on, on this point. So you, you had Kindlin, which is obviously the agency, and you, manu you kind of maneuvered into SaaS, which is uh, very, very different. What was the, um, the hardest part? Like, how did you kind of like move, make that change? I assume Torch played a big part in that. Yeah, so let's start with the hardest part. The hardest part, in my opinion, of switching from an agency to a SaaS company is that SaaS companies typically have, you know, a lot lower cost than a, than an agency for your customers. So, you know, there's many agencies that are making good money with like, you know, five, 10 clients, uh, which is kind of in the boat we were in, uh, just like a couple clients paying a couple thousand a month. Uh, and then, you know, right, right there, you have a decent business with 10 clients pretty, and you pretty standard. Yeah. Right. With yeah. all the pros and cons. Right. Uh, and then when you sh shift to SaaS, it's like, you know, every customer is giving you 50 bucks a month and you know, you're maybe not getting paid back on your 
efforts to acquire that customer for many months. So uh, you need to have more volume. So the, the, the strategies that worked as an agency are different than the strategies that are going to work as a SaaS company. And you have to be more uh, scalable. Uh, and as you're pivoting, you need to be able to you know, take those losses in the early days when you just have a few customers paying a little bit of money uh, and just understanding that, hey, where there's, you know, these 20 SaaS customers, there's probably 20,000 others uh, and we'll be able to get those. So I'm going to take that leap of faith to kind of uh, set aside the agency uh, and continue down that path of, uh, of software. Uh, so did so I'd you... say that, that's the hardest part. Were you still running the agency in parallel while you were slowly ramping up the SaaS, the SaaS product? Yeah, so so we we serviced a uh, couple couple clients, um, but we didn't allow any additional clients uh, or do any efforts to acquire any new clients. Um, and so we we continued to to service those until they eventually turned off. Uh, we were pretty high volume. Um, so by nature, we had a lot of, you know, cancellations in the sense of, hey, you know, no one's really our target market anymore because we kind of exhausted LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, so not the best way of doing it. And if I were to do the agency again, I would I would take a more uh, definitely more high touch uh, approach. But that was just uh, kind of an easy way of doing it, frankly. In, in, in what sense? In what sense a different approach in the sense that you don't hit everybody with a message? Hey, like. Can we jump on a quick call and, you know, hit like thousands upon thousands of people on LinkedIn? Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather now if I was doing it, um, I would use Wizza Enrich, which so this is the way we, we do our outreach strategies at Wizza is we're Wizza Enrich picks up uh, phone number, Twitter, uh, personal email, stuff like that. So we don't just send cold email. We use their personal email to deliver Facebook ads. Uh, we deliver Google ads and YouTube ads. Uh, we LinkedIn message and we maybe follow them on Twitter. So we're getting them on five different mediums and we can, you know, go after a more targeted list, uh, with more high touch and, uh, you know, hopefully convert more of those, get more interest from, from those lower number of prospects, um, with that more you know, kind of aggressive or, or omni-channel approach. And while doing that, I assume your, your, your cadence is a lot longer instead of you're like, okay, right. we have seven emails. We're going to hit them one after day after day and then see right. what happens. Right. Exactly. Now I want to talk about this because this is something you wrote on medium that really, really caught my attention because I've been in the same role as you in sales before you talked about context is overrated. Relevance is the like more important. Talk to me about that because John Barrows, a lot of other sales folks talk about the context and it is important, but I'm curious about your perspective about, Hey, like don't really worry about that. Sending that article that blah, 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 but you actually, what is how relevant your message is? Right. Yeah. I, I've, so at the time I wrote that, I think that those, those torch days, probably like maybe three years ago now, but, uh, there seemed to be a lot of cold email knowledge that was going around that was sort of like, um, uh, Hey, I'm reaching out because we both went to, you know, the university of Western, you know, go team, whatever. 
all this kind of stuff. Or like, oh, it looks like you're from wherever, and and I hope you're you're a Miami Heat fan or whatever. Things <laughs> right. like that, where you know it's adding some context to the to the start of the email, uh, or I'm reaching out because of this. But uh, to me, that really doesn't mean much. Um, all it does is prove to the person, hey, there was like this much effort put into to this email, not zero. And it's like, you know, for me, it's more important to have a, a message that's relevant uh, and to, to have relevance in my messaging. So I'd rather not mention that I go to the same school as, as you went to 10 years ago. But I, I, this message, the message, it's the rest of everything else is relevant, right? So. Uh, you're the right contact. Uh, I understand what my offering is and who should be buying it. So if I'm selling a, a SaaS or, or an agency or whatever it is, um, I understand who those who has the pain points that my SaaS solves, uh, and I'm reaching out to the correct person, uh, and it's relevant for for whatever reason. Maybe it's around like, let's say, uh, a round of funding, uh, and I have a hiring solution. Uh, that's that's relevant context that you can provide, um, but yeah, um, that sort of blank context that like supposed to is like to create rapport, I don't think does does much at all, especially over an email. Right, but I mean, uh, it's like let's hit the pain point well, and then right. if you do it, then we could afford to go a little bit more at scale and hit two hundred people versus like trying to individually one on by one, like have super custom email, which could work for the agency, but I mean, for SaaS won't, right? Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's like, there's, there's different ways of approaching it and how personalized you can be. Um, but I think like anything, it's, it's a balance. Uh, and there's a balance of how customized you should be in your outreach uh, because it's just not going to allow for the scale that you need. Um, I think a lot of a lot of getting responses comes down to picking the right people. And it's something that people don't talk about much is like, you know, people all the time talk about subject lines and, and email body and ways to, you know, be unique and images in your email and whatever. But uh, to me, the most important fundamental thing is are these the right people that are genuinely interested in your product? And if it's clear that you're fixing a pain point for me, even if I've got no personality and I got no images or gifts in my email or whatever it is, uh, I want to reach out and respond back to your email because it's interesting to me. So it doesn't really matter. So as long as you get that across uh, to the right person, then all that other stuff is just the last like little bit. Everything else is the, the majority of it. You know, I just while you while you were speaking, I'm, I was thinking of all the cold emails that I get, and and most of the time, ninety nine point nine 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 percent, they talk about something that I don't need, or I never had that problem. Right. Like it's nicely written. Some people go far, like oh, they'll write a novel. I, I, I admire that, uh, but right. it's 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 kind of it's funny because it just doesn't do anything. And the amount of times an email was relevant was so very few times, and it doesn't have to be long. To show like right. it, it doesn't have to be like a few key lines, what you are actively, like you have said with Torch, actively researching the problem. If it's a big enough pain, I'm trying totally. to figure it out. Like I want to invest into, well, crypto may be a bad example because it's finance, but you know, something, something similar. Like, okay, I, I've got time. Let's chat. Right. 
Right. Yeah. And it's about being the, the right person at, at the right time. And there's ways that you can do that, especially nowadays, figuring out technologies that people use. If you're a SaaS company, um, looking at competitors. So if we look at, you know, people that use Zoom Info, we can, we can now buy data and know which companies use Zoom Info. And we can reach out with uh, the pain points that we know are relevant based on our competitive analysis of, you know, hey, people come to us all the time because Zoom Info's data isn't fresh enough. Uh, so if I'm writing an email to Zoom Info customers uh, and they're the right titles, then I'm going to mention the freshness of our data. You know, I'm not going to say, hey, I see you use Zoom Info using this tool, but I'm going to mention, hey, a lot of uh, people are switching over to Wizza from, from Zoom Info because of our data freshness. And that's going to, that's going to pique their interest. Mm. Yeah, and, and, uh, and is it still the case from your perspective that a lot of folks still use rely on Zoom Info versus LinkedIn data? Depends. In terms, yeah, of, their, in terms of their outbound, in terms of their outbound efforts. If it's a SaaS yeah, business. so what we're seeing is that top down, there's still that sort of uh, sales leadership is investing in Zoom Info and wants their team to use it. And then there's the team itself that are actually using it day to day. And they're finding tools, you know, like Wizza and, and other tools. And, and they want to go on LinkedIn because when someone starts a company or gets a new role, they update it on LinkedIn that day. Uh, and Zoom Info might not pick up that change for like a, a year, right? Yeah. Um, so they want that, they want to be one of the first to reach out when this guy gets, you know, the new role. And then LinkedIn has that information um, as well as, you know, a lot more. So uh, we find the reps themselves are, are coming more to LinkedIn. And that's why, you know, a lot of people are coming to us and they're saying, hey, our team is always on LinkedIn. They're, they're not even logging into Zoom Info anymore. We see you work nicely with LinkedIn, and and that's kind of what starts the conversation with us. Mm. Yeah, I, I think they're, they're like for 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 the uh, for Visa, there's a um, like this big opportunity in the future, in my opinion. Like because uh, I've been in this role, this is where if you are able to figure out how to enrich data from Salesforce with uh, with LinkedIn data, that's a big use case where a lot of folks will pay fifty plus thousand dollars per year for Zoom Info just to purely enrich the data from Zoom Info or um, similar companies to update their Salesforce because it's mostly like it's mostly a lot of junk uh, like right uh, and 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 that, that's where a lot of money comes in um, like if, if there's a if that gap is bridged then right. there's a lot of value from that perspective beyond the sales rep like because ops are really well funded with a lot of sales right. companies right or rev ops yeah. what, what are they call the issue becomes what if Zoom Info's data is not good enough right yeah. and that's where it gets sticky now I want to talk about bootstrapping because obviously you have bootstrapped uh, your company right now, and I, you you have we talked a little bit before. You said it was more by choice, but right now you're getting some interest of people like uh, more considering potentially talking to you about investment. Um, what is going on right now? Are you considering about investment? Uh, what what are your thoughts on how do we scale this thing kind of going forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been happy with the way that we've scaled from a, uh, as a bootstrap company. Um, it's forced us to kind of automate things and not just hire as a solution uh, and kind of have good systems in place. Um, like our outreach strategy that I mentioned before, you know, 
one guy manages all that and, and then sales rep just manages what come back. So that we don't have sales reps, you know, doing their own prospecting, outreach and all that. Um, we've been able to automate it in a way that's still personal and omni-channel. Um, so uh, these are these are some of the benefits of, of bootstrapping. Plus you're building a business that you know has value outside from kind of the hype of tech and SaaS in general. Um, a bootstrap business that's profitable and cash flow positive, you know, will will always have value. Um, so, so those are some of the benefits for sure. Um, in terms of our plans, uh, I think if we raise money, it would have to be um, strategic in one of two ways. Uh, one thing we're looking at is maybe acquisition of uh, a company that would really help our growth. Um, and if and if they were a larger company, we would need to to raise some capital to do that. Uh, and then the other is uh, our sales team. So if you know we're we're, we're developing our, our you know sales process, we're relatively young, and uh, if it becomes very very clear that for every five sales hires at this amount of dollars, uh, we produce this five times return, then we may get to a point where to continue to scale that fast enough, uh, we'll need to raise money. So that, that's kind of the two scenarios I see that we w would raise money. But uh, until then, we're, we're pretty happy being bootstrapped. But I, that's what I was going to say. I think you look pretty happy with just owning 100% of your company, not trying to um, necessarily raise a certain amount of ASAP, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it allows us to make better decisions. And I'm, yeah, I'm happy with it. Yeah, we, we spoke with a lot of founders on this show uh, as well. And some of them are very, like we had Ilya from VanHack. He's super into bootstrapping. He, he loves to control 100%. Yes, it's smaller. Yes, all of the scale is, is not the same. Versus some other people, they're like 100%, we're going to raise this amount. And of course, it's very contextual, right? Whatever you're trying to, wherever, whatever industry you're in and, and the type of application you're building. But it does, on top of that, there's all this preference from, from you as a, as a, as a CEO, like how, which direction you think is the right, you're right. comfortable with personally. Right. Right. I think that's like, I think naturally entrepreneurs are pretty like, you know, they don't look like kind of authority over them, if that makes sense. Like whether that be school or a job, the boss. Um, so I, you know, a board or an investor is in some ways the same especially if you raise a lot of money and you're now, you know, a my minority shareholder and like a PE firm owns a majority share, then you're essentially working for that PE firm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's the smart thing to do. Um, I think it really depends on the type of company you have. If you've got like an Uber type company, you like, yeah, that's not a business you're ever going to bootstrap. So it's, you got to raise, um, but something like a SaaS that, that hits a specific problem on the head um, and, and can grow to, you know, multi-million dollar per year revenues. And I think, you know, if you can do it, I would stay bootstrapped as long as you can. This is a Tim Ferriss question, but uh, I would be curious uh, how you would uh, outline the answer. With your current company, are you hunting for an antelope or a field mice? Uh, in terms of our cost, uh, in terms of customers we're hunting for, or in terms of the size of, of the company, in terms of the size of the company, 
are, uh, so I would say, uh, it's tough to say. I think when Maybe I, there's something I, in the middle. Yeah. I, <laughs> like, a I don't know, squirrel, <laughs> but, uh, no, when I, when I think about the future of our business, um, and I, and I look at our competitors, I see a huge amount of opportunity. Uh, and I could, you know, I, I look at the size of the thing zoom info as like a $19 billion market cap today. Um, and when I look at that, I see that, you know, we have a lot more innovation and ideas that can lead to a lot better sales prospecting tools. Um, so when I look into the future, five years, uh, antelope, but, um, today being realistic where we are, we're closer to the, uh, to the field, field, what was it? Field mouse, field, field mice, field mice. <laughs> yeah. yes. That's us today. Uh, but we're looking to continue to, to grow into to the uh, antelope position in terms of our customers. Cause that's interesting too. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we started off with the field mice customers as well. Um, but now as we build this, you know, sales team and we're getting, you know, larger enterprise contracts, uh, all our efforts on how do we get more of those, uh, zoom info customers over to us. Uh, and that's represents, you know, a lot larger contract sizes. Um, and for us, they're, they're antelopes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which is a great point. Now there's this important, I would probably call it more like an elephant in the room in a way where LinkedIn and mm -hmm. LinkedIn has the best data set in the industry. I don't think uh, anybody could really argue with that. Uh, yeah. however, they really don't like when somebody's scraping their stuff or, uh, like running automation, for example, linked helper or duck ducks, the yeah. UX soup, That's they, they don't yeah. like that stuff. Those guys, I think they violate LinkedIn a lot more directly. And so they, you know, they figure out how to do it. I don't think you're doing it necessarily, but there's always this point where LinkedIn knows how much, val how valuable it is. And they don't want it to uh, companies to scale on top of their high yeah. quality data, or it does seem totally. like they don't like, how do you look at that? challenge because it is seems to be like a really big one especially if you go like a lot further in the future and you grow yeah yeah i mean linkedin is in an interesting boat where they have two customers to serve one is uh the sales teams that are actually paying them money right 70 bucks a month or whatever it is for sales navigator to look through that database and the other is their free customer but they have to put the free customer first because without the free customer, there's no sales navigator customer. Uh, and that free customer doesn't like, you know, as a, as a LinkedIn user myself, I hate these automated messages on LinkedIn. They're, they're annoying, right? Like I get them yeah. all the time. It's clear when they're automated. At this point, I get more automated LinkedIn messages than I do cold emails, funny enough. Um, and I probably get, I don't know, five a day on LinkedIn, um, at least. And so they're also more invasive than an email, like an email, my email is already kind of filled with stuff. Um, and I need some of it and I kind of look through it, but the LinkedIn message pops up on my phone, my laptop, and you know, it's more in my face. So that to me hurts the user experience a lot. And I'm not surprised why LinkedIn has, you know, kind of gone after solutions that, that do that like duck soup, for example. 
It's surprising uh, though they they never they did not invest. Uh, it doesn't seem like maybe they do behind the scenes. They didn't invest into inbox filtering, whatever solution is, even the basic one like email. Obviously, email been a lot longer, but figure out how to catch that spam messages. It's not hard. You can do it. Yeah. Like, uh, and they just haven't done it. So like that really hurts the real conversations of people. But yeah, we kind of get in a bit of sidetrack. Yeah, it's tough because people need to network you know, on the, it's, it's a networking tool. Um, and so it's like, how do they really determine which is which, right? You can't really say like, Hey, no two LinkedIn in mails should look the same. Cause it's like, well, they kind of naturally right. will, if you're kind of reaching out to similar people. So, um, you know, they're in a, they're in a tough position in some sense. And I think with them, they kind of have to go after, you know, the, the, the worst actors, uh, which, um, they did with like LinkedIn help or duck soup, like tools that really, uh, allow you to like spam users on LinkedIn. Um, so we don't do any sort of automation on, uh, LinkedIn side, like profile views, anything like that. Um, we do all, we made a decision from day one, never scrape contact information from a LinkedIn profile page. Cause that's not public information. The only information we scrape is uh, name, job, title, company. Uh, the rest we use our own other tools through you know various uh, APIs and, and um, technologies that we've built to figure out what's the rest of that info. Um, so we're not pulling anything private from the LinkedIn profile, which is I think also very important because you don't want to think, hey, I'm signing up for LinkedIn and all all these salespeople are going to just you know start getting this information. Uh, so that that was another decision that that we made from the start that we think. Um, was really important. Uh, on that point, funny enough, LinkedIn mm -hmm. recently got uh, a bit of bad press because um, like, I think it was 500 million profiles were leaked on like a, some hacker forum. I'm not sure if you saw the, the article, but um, what LinkedIn came out and said was, uh, hey, it's all public information. It wasn't a leak. It was just someone scraped it, but it's all public info, right? And it's kind of funny how LinkedIn's gone after, you know, people taking their info and they're saying, hey, it's our info. And then once they get in trouble for it, now all of a sudden it's, hey, no, 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 that's public info. Um, so, spin. yeah, they, they they have to spin it, too. And, and they're in a tough position. But, yeah, so so those are kind of the decisions we've made uh, around around our our product. But we always have backup plans and, and right. uh, they exist for us. But I, I, I don't think we're were much of uh, an, an issue compared to many other tools. You are, uh, you talk a lot about focus, your Twitter, your, some of your top retweets, your uh, banner on, on LinkedIn kind of clearly communicates you love to focus on a few things. What have you become better at saying no to over the last couple of years uh, by, you know, being building these businesses? Could be personal, yeah. could be more professional. I think you naturally have to because as you know you start to uh have some success and you start to meet some uh other people in your space you're just presented with a lot more opportunities and if you you know when i was just getting started it was like i'll do anything that i think might work uh and that was a big issue for me like shiny object syndrome like nothing worked because i would start something for a 
a few months and then I'd be like, oh, what, th this is so easy and this is so good and this is a hot space and whatever. And uh, it's so easy to do the same thing, you know, within your business. And then when the business is working, other opportunities come up, uh, you know, investors reach out, uh, other people wanting to start businesses that, that seem good. Uh, and you have to focus on the few things that will get you the most results. Um, so the most tangible example I can give is that uh, a few weeks ago, I was looking at uh, a software tool that I saw came up for sale, uh, which I won't mention, but it was a really good looking mm -hmm. tool. Like I enjoyed using it. Uh, it hit a problem right on the head that, that you know, I have had with hiring uh, and I wanted to acquire them and, and get working on it. Um, but uh, I sort of came to the realization that, you know, to add, let's say, 100K of MRR to Wizza is so much less marginal effort than to, let's say, acquire a business, set it up, everything, and then get from zero to 100K MRR. Uh, so I'm creating the same amount of value with so much less effort. Why wouldn't I put all that effort into the, you know, the main thing? Um, so yeah, I, I've worked really hard on, on being able to say no and, and focus on, uh, just a few things that, that I really care about, um, and, and kind of, you know, let the rest out of my head. <laughs> what do you do for that? What do you, do you go through questions? Do you, um, have certain routines? What do you, um, once you are presented with something, how do you, say no to it or what do you what, what do you run it through mentally or uh on the weekend to identify hey i'm not doing it i think i've thought about it so much that i actually feel guilt when i'm when i'm thinking about another opportunity like i'll literally when i think about doing something different it's like ah i i know i shouldn't be doing that uh and it just feels right to kind of um you know, work on very few things. So as I, as opportunities come up and they might, they, they're not all business opportunities, right? Like sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not the technical resource, you know, on our team, we have a CTO and I'm like, sometimes I'm like, you know, I should learn to code, you know, I, I want to learn to code and I, I, you know, probably only take me a couple months and a couple hours a week and, and I could be pretty good and, you know, really dig into that more. And then I have to kind of like, ease that down or, or, um, but yeah, I think the, the guilt is, is, uh, is helps me in, uh, in doing that. How tempting is it to, uh, go jump on clubhouse or events like that and start promoting yourself to a large crowd? Yeah, there's that too. It's funny. Like we're, we're doing a podcast now, but before this, you know, I think I'd done one or two other podcasts and, um, I think now I, I'm at the point where it makes sense to kind of go on podcasts and kind of get out there. But early on in the business, I, I realized like, this is not the activity that gets you from, let's say, zero to 100K MRR, right? It's not about being on podcasts. Uh, I think as you grow, general awareness becomes more important uh, and, and um, it's, it's good to go out there. Um, but at the start, you want to get in front of people that are looking for your solution uh, and that's not necessarily on podcasts so you don't have to go as 
broad. So uh, I didn't allow myself to to do any of that, for example. Um, same thing on, on Clubhouse. I don't think that's you know necessarily valuable um, for me yet. Um, and so, yeah, the, my, the strategy so far in, in growing was as let's make sure we're in front of everyone who needs our solution bad and is also looking for it. Uh, and then we can kind of broaden out from there as we grow. Mm -hmm. And it does seem like you, you mentioned your coding. Uh, what skills are you doubling down on? Which ones are you identified like, you know what, this is what I think I cannot let go. I need to be keep working on that. So sales is kind of my go-to skill that got me started. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I read about sales, but I also make sure I continually um, practice and not just kind of tell the sales team what they should be doing. So um, I send cold emails all the time to, um, to, you know, existing customers that I think should be spending more um, to just brand new. All of a sudden I come across this guy on LinkedIn. I send a cold email. Uh, I've done cold calls with the team to uh, users that have signed up for us and haven't, haven't used our tool in a while. Um, so that's to me, super, super important. I think we're going to grow through our sales team, um, but also we're a sales tool. So, um, uh, that's something I need to continually practice. Uh, and then also, uh, what's tougher for me is, is reading books. Like I never naturally, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll listen to podcasts all the time, but I never naturally necessarily, you know, read books. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think it's super important. Uh, so I've been trying to read at least a book a month. Um, and that's kind of the two areas where I feel, um, you know, is important to me in terms of learning. Do you prefer books more to podcasts or podcasts are still on the table? So still pretty good when you have, yeah, no, I prefer, I, I like podcasts a lot better. Uh, they naturally have like more tactical tips. I, I listen to, you know, there's almost always any podcast I listen to something I can learn that I can potentially implement the next day. A book, for example, could have that totally, but like, it's more um, less, more wisdom in a way. Um, there's more wisdom in books that you you don't pick up um, as much in podcasts, and uh, there's a lot of like driving really deep on a topic where you know in a one hour podcast or even a three hour podcast, it's not just not as researched and and. You know, like I read Matthew Walker's book on sleep, mm -hmm. for example. Right. There's, you know, even when Matthew Walker goes on podcast, he doesn't go in as much detail as he does on his book. So there's a certain detail that you miss. Um, it's just about picking the right books that, you know, are relevant to you and will actually help push you forward. This is a Peter Thiel question. If it's too hard, maybe we'll, okay, we can modify it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I struggle to answer it sometimes myself. What do you believe in that others would find Maybe a little bit, maybe a lot insane. Yeah, it's a pretty funny question because it's like, it's almost like the torch thing where it's like, if you really believe in it, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine that other people find it insane. Um, I think naturally I'm pretty contrarian, um, meaning like 
if something's common knowledge uh, or commonplace, I tend to think it's the wrong way of doing it. Whereas most people, I think, um, tend to think that oh, if every company is doing it this way, this is the right way of doing it. Um, and maybe bootstrapping is a good example of that. Like, you know, a lot of tech companies think, hey, the way to start a, a SaaS business is you raise money, raise a seed round, whatever. Um, whereas I don't don't see that necessarily as the right way. Um, so I think that's an example. I, I don't know if that exactly answers the question, but I think in general, the way my head kind of works is contrarian. Uh, the other thing is I'm insanely, um, I guess some people think it's crazy, but I like, I like doing the exact same thing every single day. Mm. So, uh, there's a place in Toronto called IQ food. Um, oh, I know it. Yeah. I, I eat there for lunch. I, I eat lunch there every single day, like <laughs> since, for like two years now, like every single day, same exact bowl, nothing changes. Uh, so I like, th I like repetitive, like same exact thing every day, same, not same workout every day, but you know, same time in the gym every day. Well, um, you remove the, you remove the fatigue of decision-making. Yeah. It is. I think it's really underestimated. People think, oh, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal because it compounds. You start thinking, right. then you start, then there's always the Dell's advocate or whatever you want to call it, the second voice. Oh, let's not do that. Let's go do something else. Uh, right. And you kind of like instantly you're like sidetracked by this micro decision because you had to think. Uh, and right. people don't cut up on cut up on that. And then like how like ten years ten years in, you're like, ooh, how did that happen? Right. Right. Totally. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, uh, like atomic habits, for example, the guy who wrote it, it's, it's a micro little things. I'm just going to check this thing quickly. I'm just going to sip that real thing quickly and it's fine, but it always creates a chain of events. Uh, right. and then you get sucked into something for a few hours. You missed on, 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 on an, on a task you are trying to do, but it's not really that one day doesn't matter. It's the compounding effect that does 365 right. times and then 700 times that kills whatever, whatever you were onto. Right. Right. I, yeah. I think the compounding effect is just so underestimated of everything. And I think like, I think about that when I think about focus, like, you know, uh, starting something a company usually looks like a straight line and then quite quickly curves up. Uh, so it's like, why would you on your curve jump to something else or even before your curve? Let's say you start working out. How, how long are you working out in the gym before you see any real results or before someone else? Probably a couple of months, right? Like yeah. a couple of months before you see anything uh, is, is a lot of kind of work to put into something. Uh, so you have to be able to kind of just, you know, trust in compounding benefits of that workout. And it's funny, it's like, you know, the first workout you do is the most important workout, because that's oh, what it? ends up compounding, right? right? Like, and then the second is a bit less important, but it's still insanely important, because you're building up that habit and, and the getting used to going to the gym and getting comfortable there or whatever, all, all these things. Same thing with the business, like, you know, the work I do today is very like minor, even though it feels major because now there's people here and we have a team and we have customers 
it feels like I'm doing a lot, but the, the, if you think about it, the work I did in day one when I was just whatever in like a basement or wherever I was, uh, where I chose the name, registered the company, uh, d decided what the product was going to do. Like these are huge decisions that felt like nothing at the time because there were no customers, there was no money. Um, but they actually meant a lot more than what I do today. <laughs> you know, uh, what it's it, totally and, and what, what I will say, and it really surprises me, I, I probably have to kind of dig into it more. But one of the big things that really makes a difference uh, besides doing it, besides building a habit, besides making it easy, besides the, uh, where you are located, gym makes a big difference, like the location, the room is who you associate yourself with mm -hmm. your identity makes probably one of the biggest differences. If you're like, oh, I'm not an athlete. Okay, cool. Well, then then you're good. Or I'm not an entrepreneur, then, you know, no problem. Uh, tomorrow you can get a job. I think that association is really stronger. Uh, th that kind of allows people to push through th through some times um, that are <laughs> not the best. A hundred percent. I think that's one of the biggest drivers that kind of decide, you know, everything we do and our frameworks for kind of making decisions and um, I don't think you can make any real personal change without, you know, a change in identity coming, you know, along the, along the path. Uh, and another gym analogy is kind of, uh, you know, what you, or not necessarily the gym, but what you, uh, what you get, who you become in the process is more important than, you know, what you get in the end. Um, so that's kind of like that identity you set for yourself, like, building that up through again back to the fitness point through working out every day reinforces that belief in who you are as a person and that's what keeps your momentum going i've also noticed and i'd be curious if you did too you know there's things that you really wanted like you really really want it then you get it and over time either one day or a couple of days or in a month or in a year you're feel exactly almost the same just like you did before you got that thing. And then it shifts your perspective. You're like, wait, like, I, I don't feel anything. I get it. I have it. I own it. I bought it. And it's, it's just like nothing changed. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Uh, totally. Steve, well, listen, it was, it was so nice to have you, uh, some really great insights, um, really, really valuable stuff, which will, um, excited to share with our audience. Thank you for being the guest. Uh, before I wrap up, are there any final messages you'd like to leave the audience with anything I haven't asked you, you wish I did. Maybe you want to drop a few call to actions to, uh, people who, uh, who need to build their outbound lists, anything. Yeah. If you need, uh, if you need leads or you're not really sure what you're doing with sales or, or cold outreach, um, check us out at wiza, w -I -Z -A .co, um, or add me on LinkedIn, Stephen Hakami, Stephen with a PH, last name H-A-K-A-M-I. Love to connect uh, with any of the listeners. And thanks so much for having me on. I had a great time. Thanks, Stephen. And we'll link it all in the show notes so you guys can go and check it out. But uh, thanks, Stephen, to being, for being a guest. This was another episode of Off the Record Show. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be back soon with another cool guest. We're out. We are proud.